the Lord. Hine go elenu chai. My Redeemer lives. We're going to find out why he lives today. This is, uh, actually, I guess it's week 14 in the study of Hebrews. We're going to begin in chapter 4. And I want to begin there because it has, chapter 4 has an unfortunate break where it goes to chapter 5. It cuts the author off in the middle of his thought. He's moving from Yeshua being above the angels, above the prophets, above all the other messengers of God to Yeshua also being the ultimate high priest. And so he begins this way in verse 14 of chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Yeshua, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And now five, chapter 5 verse 1 says, Every high priest is selected from among men. He is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so we're told that Yeshua is this great high priest. And as we pointed out last week, that would be a bit redundant. If you looked at it in the Hebrew, it would be great, 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 great priest. So really it should be rendered the priest who is great or, as the author is really driving at, we have this ultimate high priest. In verse 1, he begins to explain why he's the ultimate high priest by explaining the duties of the high priest. Because man is tempted and is not without failure in those temptations, he needs a priest to go before God to represent him. To offer gifts. And what does he mean by gifts? Well, the peace offering was a gift to God. It was offered solely at the discretion of the offerer. It was offered because that offerer wanted to draw nearer to God. That's the meaning of the word for the Hebrew word for offering. Korban means to draw near. It was offered because the offerer wanted to draw near to God. And a portion of that offering was eaten by the offerer. It was a meal that was consecrated to God. The offer gave the peace offering to God, and God gave a peace back to the offerer, who then ate that portion within the confines of the temple. So the offerer, in effect, ate from the Lord's table. And then he says, sacrifices for sin. Because once man is tainted by sin, he cannot go before God in this unclean state that he's in. And so the high priest is an intermediary before God. And this again was for the offer to once again draw near to God. This time, however, it was to gain right standing again. To remove the impurity caused by sin that separated him from God. But understand that the high priest not only offered gifts... And sin offerings, but the high priest was to serve as an, uh, to function as an intermediary and intercessor for the people as well. 
As an example, he will enter into the presence of God on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and offer prayer for the entire nation. On Yom Kippur, the high priest offers a bull for the house, for his house and for the Kohanim, and then offers two goats for the house of Israel. In the offering, the bull and the goats, he pleads, he makes intercession for the people. But first, he's going to offer a bull for himself. That's why the writer will say in chapter 3, verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 3, he'll say this is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. He's a man, just a man, with a very high office and, a very, and an enormous responsibility. So he first prays over the bull for himself, and the Mishnah records this prayer for us. He says, I beseech you, O Lord, I have sinned and rebelled and transgressed against you. I am my household and the sons of Aaron, your holy people. I beseech you, O Lord, grant atonement for the sins and the iniquities and transgressions which I have committed against you, I and my household. Then the high priest would go and draw lots to determine the fate of these two goats after which he would return to the bull and offer a second prayer, this time for the entire house of Aaron and and Levi. And after killing the bull and taking his blood into the Holy of Holies, he would return to the goats and pray over the goat for Azazel this prayer. O Lord, your people, the house of Israel, has committed iniquity, transgressed and sinned before you. Forgive, O Lord, I pray, the iniquities, transgressions, and sins which your people, the house of Israel, had committed, transgressed, and sinned before you. And so understand that the function of the high priest was to offer offerings, yes, but also to make intercession for the people. And not just for the people, but also for himself and his, the, the household of, of Aaron. They too were not without sin. And I bring this up in this juncture because of the study because it's going to be key as we continue. So this is the function of a high priest and it is a shadow of the function of this high priest who is great. This ultimate high priest. That's why the author will tell us this in chapter 8. He says, Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer gifts prescribed by law. They serve in a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. And this is going to be really important as we continue because the Torah, the festivals, the tabernacle, and the temple are all shadows of reality. And what is the true reality? The true reality is eternal. It's what's in heaven. The Levitical high priest serves as a copy of what is in heaven. And this is going to be important when we cover this heavenly priesthood. If you miss this, you're not going to understand just who this fellow Melchizedek is. And what is his priesthood? And it comes up in uh, this chapter in verse 6, but we're going to wait to cover who this fellow is until we get to chapter 7 where the author discusses him more fully. So the high priest and the priesthood is a copy of what is in heaven, or shall I say, 
When the high priest is following Torah, he's a copy of what is in heaven. Uh, as I spoke about last week, often, and by the first century, they were not much of a uh, shadow of anything that's in heaven. In fact, they weren't even from the house of Aaron. In fact, this is what uh, the Talmud says of the high priest at that time. He says, Woe is me because of the house of Boethus. Woe is me because of their staves. Woe is me because of the house of Hanin. Woe is me because of their whisperings. Woe is me because of the house of Cathros. Woe is me because of their pins. Woe is me because of the house of Ishmael, the son of Fabi. Woe is me because of their fists. For they are the high priests and their sons are temple treasurers and their sons-in-laws are trustees and their servants beat the people with staves. Something else about the high priesthood in the first, first century, which is noted by F.F. F. Bruce in his book, uh, Commentary on the Hebrews. He says, after the disposition of Onias III in 174 B.C., Jason and later Menelaus were appointed to the high priesthood by Antiochus the fourth. Alchemist was appointed by Demetrius the first in 162. The Hasmonean Jonathan was appointed by Alexander Balas, son of Antiochus the fourth in 152 BC. His brother Simon and his successors were appointed by decree of the Jewish people in 140 BC. And with the fall of the Hasmonean house, the high priests were appointed successively by Herod the Great. And then the Roman governors from 6 to 41 and members of the Herod family from 41 to 66. So what you can see is that by the first century, the high priests weren't even from the house of Aaron. They weren't even Levites. Therefore, they weren't high priests at all, according to the Torah. Nor were they acting within the boundaries of the Torah. They were neither sympathetic. They weren't true intercessors. The prayer they said for the people was not intercession, but merely a prayer said out of tradition. However, as we're going to see, this isn't true of the true high priest. A true high priest who's operating by the instructions within the Torah. And so the author speaks of this high priest when he says this in verse 2. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray. Since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sin as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. The high priest, because he's a man and because there were times as with Aaron that, and the golden calf incidents, that even the high priest wasn't without uncleanness. And so the high priest was familiar with human frailties. He was able to sympathize and make intercession for the people. And the important thing here is that he must be called by God. So again, as we noted, the high priest of the first century meant none of these qualities. Because none of the high priests of that period were called by God. Neither those appointed by the Hasmoneans or the, by Herod or the Rome appointees. They weren't called by God. They were called by Rome and, and, and Herod and so forth. So the writer says this. So Messiah also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming high priest, but God said to him, you are my son today, I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
the author says Messiah is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray because he is the true high priest appointed by God, called by God, not of the tribe of Levi, but of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Listen also what the writer says of this in chapter 7, verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Yeshua lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. And therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Hallelujah. And what does he live for? He's living to intercede for us. Because Yeshua lives forever, or in other words, is eternal. His priesthood is eternal, permanent, as the King James says, unchangeable priesthood. And as part of that priesthood, he lives eternally and eternally intercedes for us. So it says that Yeshua lives to intercede for us. This is amazing. Because not only did Yeshua come to die for our sins and was raised again, seated at the right hand of God, all of this because he lives to intercede before us. For us, I mean. So that the high priest, he came so that as high priest, he could identify with our frailties. He didn't uh, become subject to any of them, but he can plead our case because he was tempted in every way as we were. You see, Yeshua's redemption, redemptive work doesn't stop with the forgiveness of your sins, but he goes on interceding for you throughout your life. And not just for you, but for all that come to God through him. Throughout this age. In fact, he lives to do just that. He's seated at the right hand of God. Now forgive me for giving God human qualities. But if he's at the right hand of God, then it stands that Yeshua also has the right ear of God. Amen? And Paul knew that. And he says this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 34. Who is he that condemns? Yeshua The Messiah who died more than that was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Messiah? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? I could add death. This is the substance of our salvation, the redemptive work of Yeshua. He lives to intercede for us. And so Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Messiah? So as we walk through this life, if trouble should come, if hardship should come, if persecution or danger, even danger by the sword, we have a high priest who's pleading on our behalf, who has the right ear of God. And I believe this is really the reason for this letter. These people are losing access to the temple. And not just that. Even with access to the temple, they have no true high priest. They know that. There's nothing truthful about the Day of Atonement. They know that. Without a high priest, how can you have a Day of Atonement? The high priest has to do all these functions. And so the author wants us to know this amazing fact concerning our salvation that once we come to God and we accept Yeshua as our Messiah and Savior, we have a high priest who's in heaven. And not only is he greater, the greater high priest or the ultimate high priest, 
Because the house of Levi is but a copy of this heavenly priest. But this heavenly high priest came to earth and was tempted so he'd be able to sympathize with us so he could always plead our case for us. You know, we get some examples of Yeshua's intercession. And I believe these are, these are very similar to what he prays to this day for us. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 22 and verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Yeshua answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows, today you will deny me three times. You will deny three times that you know me. And so Yeshua, knowing that Peter's faith is going to be shaken, going to be weakened, says, I have prayed for you. Yeshua is interceding for us as well. When you understand the meaning of intercession, you really get an idea of how amazing this is. The Greek word used here uh, is translated intercession in English. And the word for intercession means to intervene on behalf of another. I like to say, and I've heard other preachers say it as well, to stand in the gap for someone. You see, it's as if, you, it's as if an ancient city were at war. And if we look at this ancient city, it would be a walled city. Ancient cities were walled. And so we have this huge hole in the wall. Well, intercession would be like you standing in the hole, defending the break in the wall. And there are two possibilities for this. Yeshua just showed us one. The enemy is about to bring disaster in the life of Peter. So, or, or in our case, in the life of someone. And you stand in the gap for that person. You come between the adversary and God for that person. And you plead his case, stopping the judgment because... Uh, uh, because God renders in favor of the person because of your intercession. The other we find is in the story of Moses. And I think this is one of the very best, and I'm going to give you some of the very best as we continue today, examples of intercession in Scripture. And this time we'll see that it's not between the adversary and God, but he's, he's, this time it's God who's angry. And he's angry with the people, and rightly so, because they've sinned. They made a golden calf, and judgment is coming. And so we read in, in Exodus 32 and verse 30, it says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have... I'm getting all these things pop up. He says... I'll start over. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord, and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, blot me out of the book you've written. We get another example of the role of high priest, again with Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 25. And it says this, I lay prostrate before the Lord those 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, do not destroy this people, your own inheritance, so your own inheritance 
that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out to put them to death in the desert. But they are your people, your inheritance, and you brought them out by your great power and your outstretched arm. You see, both of these cases, the people of Israel are about to be destroyed, and Moses stands between them and God and pleads their case. And the fact is, you get these great examples of intercession when judgment is about to come. And you also get them when after the the judgment comes, as we're going to see in a moment. As with the intercession for Israel, for the restoration of Israel. We've got a lot of people praying for the restoration of Israel, for the safety of Israel, right? Well, there's some great examples of that in the scriptures. Great examples of this when the children of Israel are dispersed. And in Babylon, in the books of Daniel, and Ezra, and Nehemiah. Let's look at one from Ezra, chapter 9, beginning with verse 6. It says, Oh my God, I'm too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads. Our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subject to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humility at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. Now, I want you to know something. I don't know how many sin Ezra had in his life, but I can tell you this from reading the Bible, I would say not much. But notice what he says here. He says, our sins are higher than our heads. Our guilt, our sins. My favorite example of this is in the book of Nehemiah. You know, the whole book of Nehemiah reads like one one long prayer. And it begins this way in verse 4. He says, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps a covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you today. Praying before you night and day, excuse me, for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess The sins we, Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands and decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you are exiled Uh, Even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. You see, if you look at this prayer closely, you're going to notice that it resembles the prayer of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And notice also it says, uh, notice also, I'm not sure again how much sin Nehemiah had in his life, but from reading the book, I would lean toward little, if any, But when he prays, he says, I confess we have sinned. 
We have acted wickedly. We have not obeyed. And then what does he do? He quotes God's promises to him. As if to say, listen, Lord, my prayer is within your will. Hear the words of your servant. So answer the prayer of your servant. And notice that these men all quoted God's word back to him, his promises back to him. And then they, often they pray for the sake of your great name. Because if you don't keep your promises, your great name will suffer. Amen? Look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 14 verse 7 says, Although our sins testify against us, O Lord, do something for the sake of your name. For our backsliding is great. We have sinned against you, O hope of Israel, its Savior in times of distress. And if we go to verse 20, it says, O Lord, we acknowledge our wickedness and the guilt of our fathers. We have indeed sinned against you. For the sake of your name, do not despise us. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember your covenant with us and do not break it. So let me say again, these men of whom we have really no recorded sin in their lives, and I can tell you now that they're not carrying a sinner around in their hip pocket, they are identifying with the sins of the people. And you see a pattern here? You see, these prophets, these men who we call prophets, they were also intercessors. And not just that, but there's a pattern here for seeking God. A pattern of identification with the people. A pattern of pleading for the people by, remembering, by reminding God who he is and what he has promised and said. And I want to show you one more thing. Because we see this in the life of Yeshua as well. The disciples come to him and they, one day as recorded in Luke 11, and it says, one day Yeshua was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. You know, many teach that, we're going to read this in a minute, but many teach that this prayer that he's going to say is taken from the Amidah. And the, the, the prayer that we stay at the, the start of our services, it's also called the standing prayer. But I ask you, if that's the case, why do you suppose the disciple says, teach us to pray? If this is an offshoot of the Amidah, why did he give them a prayer that they would have already known? Because every Israelite knew the Amidah in the first century. It was said in the temple and the synagogues three times a day. Why would he give them that? Right? Pretty good question, I think. Let's see if we can find out. Verse 2, he said, Then he said to him, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Lead us not into temptation. Do you see the pattern here? It's the same pattern. Give us, forgive us. Lead us. You see something here? He's teaching his disciples to be intercessors. And yes, it does resemble the Amidah, because where do you, and why do you suppose that is? Well, it's simple. The Amidah was taken from the men of the great assembly, the great intercessors like Nehemiah, Ezra. The great intercessors of Israel. And notice, I underline, teach us to pray. They didn't say, teach us a prayer. They said, teach us to pray. And he's teaching the most important aspect of prayer He's teaching them to be intercessors. 
They already knew the prayer of the men of the great assembly. He's teaching them to be intercessors, to identify with people. He says, Lord, forgive us, lead us. We, us, our. In other words, if you're going to be effective, you have to identify with those you're praying for. Yeshua's prayers are effective because Yeshua came here so that he could identify with our situation, so that he could identify with our frailties, our temptations. I want to show you something else about these men of the great assemblies. The men of the great assemblies like Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel. They were in Babylon. But I'm going to tell you something. They weren't hurting. Right? They were cupbearers. They were consultants to the king. They had good lives. Nothing to worry about. They had good lives. They had godly lives. Daniel prayed three times a day. He lived a life without compromise. God loved these men. They were valued by the Babylonians. They had high positions. They had everything in life they could want. They were comfortable in the natural. But they weren't comfortable in the spirit. They were consumed with doing the will of God. They were consumed with the burden of their people. They were consumed with the burden of God for his people. And that took them away from their comfort zone. And caused them to cry out to God, to fast, to mourn, to weep. Get out of their comfort zone. It caused them to cry out to God. We have sinned our sin. Though they had none or none recorded. Forgive us. Though their hearts were clean. That's an intercessor. And that's after the pattern of the master as well. Read the prayer he prayed in the garden. Read the whole of John of 17. These are examples of what Yeshua prays for us at the right hand and at the right ear of the Father. They are examples of what our prayer life should be because we're to follow in the footsteps of the Master. If you want to affect your family in prayer, if you want to affect the Kehillat in prayer or the city in prayer or Israel in prayer, it's going to take some getting dirty. It's going to take some weeping, some groaning, some wailing, some weeping. For the sins we have committed against God. You have to identify with the plight of the people. Their plight is God's plight. Their plight is the whole reason Yeshua came into this world and did what he did. And when you identify with their plight, you touch the heart of God for his people. Those of you who want to hear from God more clearly or to hear from God at all. Well, there's no quicker way than to reach out and touch the heart of God for someone else. And the point of all of this is to teach today what Yeshua prays for us as he stands in the gap for us. But it is also to teach us, to help us begin to pray the heart of God for his people. You know, if you want a relationship that these men had, then this is how you're going to have to pray. And if you don't pray this way, you might want to come to the study that starts on February 6th. Amen? Let's bring the worship team back up.